So let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have uh, to gather here to worship you, to fellowship with one another, uh, to tur- turn our attention uh, to your, your word, um, which in today's passage we see is so uh, critical for us. We ask that you would help us to understand uh, what is said here in this chapter. We ask, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts and it would go deep uh, with, within our souls, that we would understand uh, what Jesus prayed here. Lord, this passage many have described as, as the holiest of holies uh, within the scriptures. In many ways, I feel inadequate to, to comment on the prayer that Jesus prayed. But Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would lead us, guide us, Lord, and help us to, uh, to feel this prayer. We thank you uh, that you're a God who loves us and cares for us and is actively uh, working behind the scenes in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you more and more each day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 16, verse 29. <clears throat> uh, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming, and it has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Over to chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kedron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, 600 men, And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, They drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. One of those whom you have given to me, I lost no one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword back into the sheath and the cup which, and the, cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And Father, we do ask that you would lead us through today's passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. 
so this week I've been sort of pondering the idea, like if somebody told you, like, or if God told you, because that's like a pretty good person, uh, like you're going to die in 24 hours. Like what would your life look like in those 24 hours? If you were to pray, what things would you be asking of God? Like how would, how would, like what would you do? How would you seek him? What would you be calling out in your heart? And so in today's passage, we've been at the Lord's Supper. They've transitioned. We have the picture behind us, which is a view from the Mount of Olives to, to the temple courts. They believe that kind of from the left side of the screen down into the valley, that's the Kedron Valley. It's dark. They've moved from the Lord's Supper, and they're progressing their way uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't record the, the prayer that we know of the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, that Jesus went over there, stones threw away. He began to pray. The guys are snoring. He says, what are you guys doing? I asked you to pray for me. John doesn't include that. John goes from this teaching about there's going to be tribulation in this world. And they're making their way. At the end of today's chapter, they find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes immediately to the, the arrest and so Jesus knows that he's at the very end. He knows that he's about to be arrested. He knows that the punishment is about to, to come upon him, and he's going to face the wrath of God that is required as a, as a penalty uh, for, for our sins, that he was going to bear the wrath of God to absorb the penalty that was due us so that ultimately we could have life. This week, today is Palm Sunday. We're not a very liturgical church, but we're getting ready for Good Friday we, we, this, this week when Jesus enters Jerusalem leading to the cross. Um, the, the, the time has, has sort of expired. His hour had come. And so he, he gives this prayer, truly the Lord's Prayer. This, this chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. This is what he, what he prays going into his arrest, going into his crucifixion, and ultimately the giving of his life. Um, I said in my prayer, this chapter has been described as the holiest of holies in, in Scripture, that it's kind of like this sacred, not all Scripture is, but there's something about this prayer that we have insight into what Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion. Um, there's a Scottish reformer by the name of John Knox, <clears throat> As he was dying, he was diagnosed with a sickness, and over a period of time, uh, you know, weeks, he had his wife read John chapter 17 over and over and over to him. And as she was reading the chapter, that's how he entered into glory. Uh, Thomas Manton, he was a famous uh, Puritan. When he came to this chapter in the Gospel of John, he took 45 weeks to preach through it. There are 52 weeks in a year. So I realize when I come to this chapter that I've put myself into a bit of a pickle. Um, like, it really looked good on paper, like, hey, leading up to Easter, we'll do six weeks, all these chapters will be no big deal, we'll fly over. And I've come to this chapter, and I'm like, ah, uh, like, how do I adequately do this? And I, like, I, I don't think I can. And there's a lot that we, there's going to be areas that I'd want to dive into, but I have to kind of keep moving and so in keeping the, the big picture in Jesus' prayer as he's about to give of himself everything, this prayer has been divided into three sections. Most people sort of acknowledge there's three sections here. The first five verses, most will tell you this is Jesus' prayer for himself 
that's that's the accepted sort of uh, if you're going to uh, structure this in an outline. Verses one through five, Jesus prayed for himself. But when you look at the text, he's praying for himself. But what he he's really praying is that this this mission would come into completion, and that he would that it would be honored in such a way that God would be most glorified. It's 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 beautiful. As I read the first five verses, I uh, in the military when whenever we would take trips, we would take these trips. We come back. I don't know if they do it today, but there's like old school paperwork from like the 1940s, and you'd have to like go line by line. I left my house. I drove for 45 minutes. It was X amount of miles. I arrived at the command. From the command, I went to the airport. That took 32 minutes, this many miles. From the airport, I flew to this destination. I was there for X amount of days. I stayed at this hotel. I stayed here. And you go through all the very end. You get all the way through the very end of the paperwork, and you'd write MC. Can anybody guess what MC is for? Uh, you got to be quiet. You know, right? I know. You probably know. Mission, com- mission complete. You are done with everything. And so when I look at these first five verses, I have MC. Jesus speaks as though the mission is complete. He has fulfilled what he's come to do, uh, knowing that the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, that was still going to unfold over three days, but he speaks in such a way that it's been fulfilled. Then the next few verses, 6 through 19, these, these verses are profound. I'm, I'm, I always try to imagine myself being one of these 11 guys. Uh, the setting, it's nighttime, early morning, dark. Um, they don't quite understand what's going on, but they understand that something's going on. They understand that there's something serious happening. And in this section, Jesus begins to pray for those 11 guys that are with him. And I don't know how you guys feel, but like when you're in a situation and somebody's praying for you and you can hear them praying for you, I don't think there's anything more like humbling or powerful. There's Super duper special, like to hear somebody think through your circumstance and then to to go before your creator and to ask him to intervene. it's, It's powerful. And so Jesus takes this time and he's praying for these 11 disciples that were to take the, the baton and to run with it. And, and basically we are here today as worshipers of Christ because of the foundation that these guys laid. And then in verses 20 through 26, the very last section of this, what's referred to as the high priestly prayer, is that Jesus then prays for the people who would come to faith because of the work of the 11 guys that he just prayed for, that he sees the church that would come and he knows that there will be followers, that we literally, in the most real sense, that we can plug our names into this section when we read I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for Gunner, for Grace Point Church, for those believers in Valley Center, the United States and around the world, the the believers that exist today, that this is a prayer that he prayed for us. And then immediately as he concludes, he basically, we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, John wastes no time, and immediately they're coming to arrest him. 
and then the beating is going to begin. And within 18 hours, Jesus is dead on the cross. It's powerful. And so we come to the very first section, these first five verses. And we read, Jesus spoke these things, and he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he said, and I love that John gives this, uh, this, is, this is colorful language. You can almost see Jesus in the moonlight because this is, we know because of the lunar calendar, the moon was probably out, that he's looking up and he's audibly speaking to God. The disciples are there to record the prayer, to remember it through the Spirit, bringing it to mind. He lifts his eyes to heaven or to the skies, you could translate that word. He said, Father, the hour has come. When you go through the Gospels, every time they tried to arrest him or ask him his mom at the wedding saying, hey, we ran out of wine, can you do something? It's like, my hour hasn't come. My hour hasn't come. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. We get to this place and he says, the hour has come. The the moment has arrived. The mission is complete. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And as we flow through Chapter 17, this, this word glory or glorify appears a whole bunch of times. It's one of these key words. Uh, Charles Swindoll defines it like this. Glory refers to the Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, which would vindicate the truth of his teaching and his identity as the Son of God. So it's this, this, this manifestation, this, this, just this glory Uh, which is not what you're supposed to do when you're trying to explain a word is use the word to explain the word. But it's just like, it's just glorification. And so he says, glorify your son. He's saying, as I am about to enter into the things that I'm about to enter into, he's fully human at this point. And he's saying, give me the strength, allow me to to go through these final moments so that in me, I'll be glorified and that you'll be glorified that your son may glorify you even as you have given him, speaking of himself, authority over all flesh, and that to all whom you have given to him, he may give eternal life. And so he's saying, you've given me authority over all flesh, all things. And that through me, you're allowing me to give eternal life. And then he's going to explain and define what eternal life is. Eternal life, another key word that flows really throughout the gospel of John, but in this chapter, it's a major theme. So he says that um, he may give eternal life. He, speaking of himself, may give eternal life. Verse 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, you and me, that they may know you. Know is a key word. So if you're writing your Bible, circle that word. It's going to appear all throughout this passage, uh, gnosko. It's not just um, knowledge, like information in your, in your, in your mind. Um, it's, it's knowing something, but it's knowing something experientially. This is relationship. This is intimacy. That eternal life is being with God. I think one of the... Uh, the misunderstandings is we think, oh, Christians live forever and non-Christians die and they cease to exist. 
A few weeks ago, I talked about my friend that posted a thing that we're, we're not bodies that have souls. We're souls that have bodies. All people were created to list, exist forever going f- forward. The question is, is where are you spending your existence? Apart for, from God? In, in hell, separated from him? Horrific? It's not, a, it's not a place of partying. It's not a place of joy. You know, like I have, I'm sure all of us uh, have buddies that are like, I want to go to hell where all my friends are going to be. Like it's going to be a hopping down there. That's, that's not, it's separation, it's isolation, it's torture, torment. And Jesus says, I have come to give eternal life. And eternal life is this intimate knowledge and relationship with the Father the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And if we were to look at the work, going back to John chapter 1, verse 18, we see that his work was, number one, to manifest the Father, to demonstrate who God was in flesh to, 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 to Israel and to the world. He came to live a perfect life so that on the, sac- on the cross, his sacrifice would be considered sufficient. I glorified you, verse 4, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so this isn't Christmas time. Easter is different. We're celebrating the cross at, at, at Easter, or really the resurrection, technically. Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, and at Christmas time, we think that that's when Jesus came into existence. No, this is the celebration of his advent when he uh, came in the form of man. As we've been going through Genesis, and we see back in the beginning, the, the first couple chapters, when God speaks of himself in the plural form, Jesus says, Lord, restore the glory that I had. Restore me to my full deity separated from humanity that I had before the world was, was, that ever was. Jesus is God. And I don't know if we can go as far as to say, but some have suggested that in verse 5, we see Jesus being homesick, that he's had enough of this world. Like, we think it's really great down here, but it's nothing compared to what God has in store and, and was in heaven. He said, restore to me what was. I'm ready to go home. My mission is complete. He shifts his attention in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And as we go through this next section, verses 6 through 19, it's, it's interesting. We see that God gives or the Father gives to Jesus these 11 guys or 12 guys. Judas will be addressed in, in this section. But he gives them out of the world, and he's, he has this, this, uh, this goal of mentoring and discipling them, equipping them to send them out over the course of the three years. Out of the world. But by the end, he's doing his thing in their lives, and then he's going to send them back into the world, not to retract from the world. So I've, I've manifested your name to the men, the 11 who are with them. You gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. This word kept, not in this particular sentence, but the word kept 
is, is another key word that flows through this context, that God keeps us. So we first read that these guys kept the word of God. Um, and I love how gracious Jesus is being in his grading of them. I don't think that we would grade as graciously. Um, these guys have failed. They've blundered. They've done all sorts of stuff. Peter's about to lead into all of his denials in the next couple of hours. And yet, when he's praying over them, he's like, I give them an A+. They've been keeping your word. They're doing a great job. And I just love that um, because none of us in this life will be perfect in how we live out our faith for God. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to make mistakes. And we have a gracious God. He says, you know what? They kept your word. Verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one as, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would not be fulfilled. This is Judas. All of them were kept. This, this word kept, keep them. I've guarded them. I've protected them. He understands that he's going to leave them, that they're going to be scattered, that they're going to face persecution. And this is the request that he asked God, keep them, help them to stay faithful, help them to seek after you, help them to carry out their mission that you are calling them to do in the founding of this new church. This is this beautiful, this is this beautiful dialogue. You read this, he's like, what's he saying here? I've been glorified in you. You've been glorified in me. Now they've been glorified in you. And there's just this like picture of, of, of unity and reflection that they're to carry out the mission which Jesus started. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he speaks of the joy that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which would come as they receive new life, forgiveness of sins, they will be able to experience joy that only God can offer, that they're going to have this fullness of joy that Jesus has that he's giving to them regardless of the circumstance. He goes right into this that the world hates them. They're going to face persecution. Of these 10 guys, 10 of them are going to be executed for their faith, for walking uh, with God and for God. John is the exception, but they tried to kill him. They just failed. And only because the emperor was superstitious did they just exile him and let him be. So he says, this peace, this joy, let it be made full in them. 
He said, I have given them your word. And I do think that the word of God is super critical. That's why we focus on the Bible week in and week out, that we pick books of the Bible, we go through it, we put it in here, because this, this is what we have from God. And this is where we have to place our focus. He says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. And so the question is, like, where are they from? Like, where, like, and over in Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn with me towards the back, over to Philippians chapter 3, this is something that we really, like, need to grapple with. It's like our citizenship. Like, you know, all of us are dual citizens. You know, my assumption for most of us, I think, in this room are have a, American passports, um, we have American citizenship, but the real passport that we have, if you've trusted in Christ, is the passport of heaven. And, and, and this is the, the ultimate passport and, and the, the most critical citizenship that we have. And at times, we find ourselves in conflict with our, our U.S. citizenship and our citizenship of heaven. Or, or we should, like, there should be a conflict there. It, it, it's, life isn't simple. When you live for God, there are things and requirements that he asks us to do that simply go against our nature. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, we're not going through Philippians, but Paul finds himself under arrest yet again. The people whom he loved, who he ministered to, these people in Philippi, they were worried, they were anxious, they were concerned about Paul's well-being. When he writes them, he tells them, listen, this world is not our home. You might have a passport. Paul had a Roman passport. It was the most powerful passport of the day. Like the American passport, like the American passport, if it's not the most powerful passport in the world, it's in the top tier of most powerful passports. There's, there's a lot of passports out of the EU that are very powerful that will get you into different countries. But our American passport is nothing compared to our passport that gets us into heaven. And he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and we in this world, there's this longing to be with our Lord. There's this, there's this homesickness that we should long to be there that we desire to be there. Paul in Philippians also says, you know, I, I, I wrestle like to be absent from bodies, to be present with the Lord, and that's where I want to be, but God hasn't taken me yet. And so therefore, like I have this mission to be here, and if I'm here, then I'm going to serve for him. It doesn't matter what happens to me. And when you live like that, it, it's from a source of joy and peace and understanding. And back in John, this is what he's asking the Father to do for these disciples who Jesus knows are going to face all sorts of problems in this world. Back to verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus doesn't pray that his followers would find a big plot of land in the middle of nowhere on a lake with a, with a cafeteria and bathrooms and beautiful lake, that they can go be in isolation, free from the world and not be in the world. He saved us out of the world, but he's placed us in the world. I, I think they've lost uh, flavor, but there was a trend in Christian circles, those now stickers, the not of this world. I'm not endorsing them, but that's where it came from. And this, this passage, that we understand our citizenship is not of this world, that we're going to find conflict, we're going to be at odds. If you're a believer in California, you're going to be in conflict with your government. Like there's going to be tension with our government. God has called us to submit to our government, to, to walk in peace with our government. But the principles and philosophies of this world and the authorities that are over us are in conflict with the scriptures. And so we have to, to, to grapple with honoring God, honoring God and submitting to our authorities and honoring God and being faithful to the scripture. It, this is, I wish there was a simple answer to this. I wish it was just like, oh, just check all these boxes and do this sort of thing and do these political events. And then, you know, like that's not, it's not simple. And Jesus' prayer before he's about to be executed by the authority which he's submitting himself to, he's praying for them. Lord, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm asking that you would help them to honor you as they're in the world, as they're in there and salt in the world. To keep them from the evil one, verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. This is another word that surfaces. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. And so this word sanctification or sanctify comes up multiple times. This is a huge theological term. Guzik defines it this way. Uh, sanctify means to be set apart for God's special pleasure and use. It implies holiness, being set apart from corruption of the world and for God's use. So set apart for a special purpose, for a use. I could make the case that you've been sanctified to help with the shade structure today, that this is like part of God's glory, to that we honor him in this way. Might be taking it too far. There are three different types theologically that we understand sanctification. There's positionally sanctified, that when you come to Christ and you receive him as your Savior and you believe upon him, the Bible says that you've been sanctified. You've been moved from the body of Adam over into the body of Christ. You are sanctified positionally before God. He no longer sees your sin. He sees you through the blood of Christ, and you are set apart. There's progressive sanctification. This means that on the day that you become a Christian and you give him your life, that doesn't mean that your flesh has worked out all of the kinks. I would argue that in this life, there will always be kinks to, to, to work out. We are sinners that have been saved. And so God moves us to be more like Christ over the course of our life. This is progressive sanctification, that today... 30 years later or whatever it was from the day I got saved, when I look back, I'm like, man, God's got a, he's done a lot of work in my life. I am like 
way more like Christ today than the day whenever that was that I came to Christ. But when I look forward in my life, it's like, man, I got a long way to go. Like I got like there, like I have a I'm not saying it'd be funny. I got a there's a ton of work within me. And until the day he calls me home, that's when the job will be done. And that's ultimate sanctification that when we depart from this life into the next, we're free from our body of sin and we have our new bodies no longer struggling with sinful nature and we will finally achieve ultimate sanctification. And so Jesus is praying in this section, verses 17 through 19, he's praying, Lord, sanctify them, set them apart for your service, continue to do your work in their lives. They have a huge job ahead of them. And their world is about to turn, up, turn upside down. In seven verses, their worlds are going to be totally rocked. And then we come to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of the 11 disciples that are there before him, but for Gunner, Grace Point, fill in your name, for those also who believe in me through their word. Like, think about that. We are reading the words of the Apostle John who was there being prayed for in the previous section that God used the Apostle John to write John, to lead the early church as one of the leaders of the apostles. Now, he, through the Spirit, wrote his books. Peter, who was there, would write his books. Paul, who would come later, would then write his encounter with Christ, and we would have most a lot of the New Testament. And that we're reading his words today. And so we are those also who believe in Jesus through their word. That the message we have about the gospel came through the apostles. I wish there was a 23 in me for the gospel. Like that you could spit in a tube and they would say, oh yeah, Gunnar, you heard about Jesus from JR. JR heard about this from this couple. That couple goes all the way back. Oh, your gospel came through Peter. Like wouldn't that be super cool? Like maybe in heaven, like if we're all like to figure out how many of us, you know, like came from maybe in heaven, but I'm kind of thinking when I get to heaven, I'll be like, Gunnar, you had a bunch of stupid ideas. Like, does it like, do any of these ideas matter? Like, I don't know. But we, we, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. It, it ultimately came through these guys. Like it ultimately goes back to them. And so then Jesus, on the night which he's betrayed, he wants to pray for us. Gives me goosebumps. That they would be one. And that's a key word, one. One here in verse 22, in verse 23, like this idea of like unity. That what Jesus prays is not that there be mega churches, not that they would be super trendy, not that they would be all, like I'm not saying that these things are, what he wanted of his followers, that they would be united, that they would keep the main things the main things, and that there would be love and harmony amongst their differences. You look at the disciples, you, you have a zealot, you have a tax collector, you have fishermen. These are guys who should hate each other. And the church should be composed of people who, apart from Christ, shouldn't get along, don't get along, don't associate with each other. This is one of the most powerful things in my life that I had seen is when I went to prison. I mean, not personally, but like I was a visitor. <laughs> I got a little excited. I should have been in prison, I'm sure, for a bunch of them. I mean, I just never got. But I was invited to go to Kairos, this cookie baking thing. And so then they have the four tables. 
And the, the people who run this ministry in prison for these guys that are serving like super long life sentences, prison is the most racially segregated place in the world. And I come in to this closing ceremony after these guys have spent a week together and they're talking about as soon as we leave this room, we have to get segregated again. But when we sit in this table they intentionally put all the different races at the different tables. And to see them like crying and hugging each other and just saying, I wish I could display this to you out there, but if I do that out there, I, like, I'm going to be dead. So I think somebody said I'm going to be Yeah, that's what you said, right? That's... And Jesus says that to his followers, that they may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, Purpose clause, so that the world may believe that you sent me. When the world looks in on Christianity and says, man, there's like different racial groups, different social economic backgrounds coming together and worshiping, something is different about that because the world is, is not like that. And he's saying by how we love on one another, if we love on one another well, that speaks volumes. It's way more powerful than our words. That's not to say that we don't use our words because the gospel, like, it is using our words. Um, I, yeah, I'm not going to get sidetracked. I'm out of time. Like, I gotta, I, our words are very important. The gospel is communicated through words. But our lives have an impact on our words. And we've all experienced that. Many of you are probably slow coming to the faith because you knew those that had big words, but their lives didn't align with the words. And so we want our lives to align so that our words have an impact. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, another so that statement, so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. And he's done. This is, he said, Father, I've, I've devoted this last three years. The things which I wanted to communicate, I've communicated to them. They've been equipped. They know you. They have this intimate relationship with you. They, they have this knowledge that's not just in their minds. It's made it down to their heart, and they have this dynamic and intimate relationship with you. Your glory has been manifested. I'm praying that as I depart, I wish that they could go to be where I am so that they could see the glory, that they would understand, and that they would have the, the faith and the life that would, would demonstrate that we serve the risen God. This is like... I'm trying to like, do I pin my tongue or do I not? I'm just like, Easter is wonderful. We celebrate Easter every single day. As a Christian, Easter is every day. Jesus is risen. He is risen. 
I said, indeed, every single day, this should light our fires. Like, this is why we wake up in the morning. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. My sins have been paid for. It doesn't matter what this world does to me. It doesn't matter what the state of California does. It doesn't do, matter what the world does. We know that our Savior is risen, that before God, we stand clean, pure, white as snow, and that we have this relationship with Him, and He's in control. And if your car breaks down today, God's bigger than that. He's going to do something through your car breaking down. Now, I'm not saying, that, Lord, may nobody's car break down. Like, that's not, I'm, like, I'm not trying to condemn anybody's car. But like when you go in the world and, and the things that we have to endure come against us, we could know that our God is bigger, that we serve a risen Christ. He's saying they've known you, and, and he is praying for the mission that he's about to send them out on, this great commission apart from him. I want to end, kind of. You know, when a pastor says that doesn't mean anything. I got about three minutes in my calendar. But over in Philippians, as Jesus is praying, his mission is complete. He longs to be back with the Father. um, That he wishes that they could see his glory. When the Apostle Paul found himself in jail in Philippians, where we read earlier, In verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, we read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, kenosis, this this taking on the form of, of humanity, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is where the story is leading, Jesus dying on the cross. Next week, when we come here on Sunday and we celebrate the risen Christ, verse 9, this is what Paul focuses on. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Like we know that he's at the right hand of the Father now. Jesus is alive, thriving, caring about our dealings and how we go about our lives. He wants to get into our business And we can live with confidence knowing that we serve this risen God. So what do we do with this passage? This like chapter 17 of John has been, I don't don't want to say direct me, but it's like terrified me knowing that I have to teach on it on Sunday. And and it always comes like this, so what do we do do with this? I've changed the so what do we do with this like about a bazillion times. Like I think the first thing is that Jesus prays for us. Like Jesus, we're told in Revelation that he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding, he's our advocate. Jesus actively now is praying for you. There's Satan who is actively building a case against you and Jesus is basically shooting down his case day and night because we need it. He cares for us. He asks the Father to save us, to keep us, and to sanctify us. I don't know if you're saved or not, 
Salvation comes through belief, not works. The world system says you have to do in order to receive. One of the things I've really enjoyed is one of the Spanish teachers that we have, not at my level Spanish, but Anna also communicates with them. And he's a Spaniard. Spaniards are like Catholicism is like rooted deeply in their culture. And he's like, well, I've never met a Christian. Like, I don't, even, I don't even understand. And so Anna's like sharing with him the gospel and like explaining stuff. He's like, whoa, 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 time out. He's like, I don't think your Spanish is good enough. And like, he's already said, well, you speak like a local, so why are you talking? Like, and he's like, you're trying to tell me that you don't have to do anything to be saved. Like, there's nothing for you to do. And she's like, no, you're understanding correctly. He's like, ridiculous. Like, that's what religion is, is to do stuff in order to get right with God. And she's like, it's impossible. You could never get right with God. He's like, I want to talk more about this. He's like, but I just don't understand. Because this whole idea of grace, that we simply come and believe, not on our own works, but based on the work of Christ, what he did on the cross, it's too simple. It's too simple. It doesn't make any sense. We like to com- complicate it. But so he's praying that he would save and that once you receive, that he would keep you, keep you free from the temptations of your flesh, keep you from the trials of this world, keep you, or, or I would say to allow the trials of this world, not to keep you from the trials of the world, but to allow you to be molded into his image through the trials that you will face. And that's the sanctification process. He desires transformation. He wants us to know him, to understand him. This is why the word of God is so important, that we place it into our minds, into our hearts, and that we go about our days allowing the word to do its work within us. As we grow in the word, in our knowledge and relationship with God, our longing for heaven increases. Like we get fed up with this world. We, we, we reach the point where we realize that this world really has nothing to offer us. It can't deliver it's like the as-seen-on-TV commercials. I always think about that spine straightener that I bought on the stu- as like two in the morning. You'd lay on it. It'd fix all my back problems. I think it made the back problems worse. Like it can't, like it can't. I think of the lady in the New Testament who came to Jesus who had bleeding for 12 years and we're told there that the doctors, after everything, they only made her worse. The world only makes us worse. Jesus fixes And so as he fixes us and does this work from the inside out, our longing for him grows. As he does this work within us, our love for each other grows. There's a bunch of you I wouldn't hang out with. I'm not going to look at anybody, but it's like, but like we all know, like, like we're a family. Family, it's like you're, you're forced to be in your family. But there's like meaningful relationships with people like in this room, like, there's a lot of you, like, I, we, you wouldn't hang out with me, I wouldn't hang out with you, but through Christ, we suddenly love each other. And it's radical. I mean, it's, it's true transformation. And then as we understand what Christ has done for us, our burden for the lostness of the world grows. We desire to share Christ with the world around us because we recognize that their answers aren't getting them anywhere. And this is where God begins to transform us, where we want to serve and we want to do things for him. And so I'll close with a reminder for the shade cloth because it's a great way to apply that. 
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Lord, this prayer is humbling. It's overwhelming to see the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to, to reaching out to you in these first five verses, praying for the completion of his mission, the longing to be back to his original glory, which is where Jesus is now. Father, it's so easy for us to uh, to take Jesus out of heaven and to take away his authority and his power and to live our lives like he's a trinket that's like a rabbit foot or something like that. And Father, I pray that you would help us to rightly place Jesus where he is at your right hand in authority, moving and working in our lives. It's so easy to get discouraged. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to take our eyes off of our troubles and our concerns and to place them upon Jesus, who is Lord of lords and King of kings. Father, I thank you for the prayer that you prayed over the disciples. I thank you for these men who were not perfect. I thank you that the New Testament does not paint these guys as superheroes. They were flawed. They were sinners. They struggled. They missed the mark. They misunderstood And I thank you that these are the guys that you used. It's an encouragement to me and I'm sure to others in this room. I thank you, Lord, that as you're about to get taken into custody and under arrest, that you would would think to pray for those that would come to know you. That as you prayed on this last evening of your earthly life, that you prayed for our unity our togetherness, not our uniformity where we're all robots in the same, but in the midst of our differences and how you've created us different with different gifts and talents and interests and looks and just everything different, that in the midst of that through your spirit, we can be one and we can be united and we can gather together and worship you together. Father, we do pray for our community Valley Center, Escondido, California, just the world that we have an impact on. We pray, Father, that they would see a difference in us and they would have their curiosity piqued. And they'd ask why, what's different? And that as Peter wrote, that we would be ready for an answer or with an answer in season and out. Father, we desire to tell the world about you. Father, we pray. Father, that lives would be transformed as the gospel goes forth. We thank you that you have done your work in each one of us. We love you. We ask that you continue to do your work through our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.